One of the biggest projects that Nashville has ever seen is finally opening its doors. Suburban retail is performing surprisingly well, despite retail outlooks. And this week's wild card might be bad news for Texas. I'm your host, Tyler Cobble, and we are going to cover all of that and more on this week's Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. Let's dive on into the Nashville market. So 2020 commercial real estate sales dipped 37% from previous year. That's a pretty significant number if, uh, if you follow commercial real estate or any kind of real estate whatsoever, because Nashville for the last decade has seen year-over-year growth and pretty fairly significantly growth at that. At that. So, you know, one thing that they noted in this article, uh, this is from uh, the Nashville Business Journal, was that even though we had this massive dip in 2020, we're still looking better than the three years of the Great Recession combined. So all in all, you know, let's let's look at it from a glass half full perspective. We're doing OK. Um, you know, the the crazy thing is 37 percent. You look at it. I mean, really, we lost basically three months last year. Right. March, April, May, and Nashville were basically gone. Most investors at that time weren't really interested in moving on anything. Everybody was trying to figure out what was going on. I'll never forget, you know, one, we got hit by the tornado. And we do a lot of work in East Nashville. And so getting hit by the tornado shut down East Nashville on March 2nd, uh, which is actually coming up on one year tomorrow. You know, a couple of weeks after that, we got hit by COVID and, and all of Nashville got shut down and everything was actually pretty fine up until we had that three day bear run on the market where, you know, Wednesday record lows, Thursday record lows, Friday record lows. And we just started getting calls from all of our clients that had properties under contract, you know, saying, hey, we've got to terminate it. We don't know what's going to happen this year. So, you know, a 37 percent dip. Uh, really makes sense. But you know what's interesting? We ended up having our best year ever despite essentially losing a quarter. So I think, uh, I think Nashville's going to turn that around. Uh, but it is pretty, you know, pretty noteworthy that, that we finally had a downward dip for a year. Up next, this is according to the Nashville Post, record sale set in Germantown home. Uh, a $1.3 million townhouse. Uh, sold for the equivalent of $512 per square foot. Uh, this is at the Luxus development uh, in Germantown. And uh, over off of Monroe Street, the house is about a little over 2,600 square feet. Uh, and they originally purchased it in 2014. I believe it was new construction in 2014. You know, we're not really going to be talking a whole lot about residential on this channel. But for the urban Nashville market, that is an unbelievable price per square foot. I mean, it's, you know, th those ha same townhouses when they were selling back in 2016, were going for close to low 400s per square foot. So it just shows you how much demand has actually increased in the Nashville market in the last four or five years, despite being in the middle of a pandemic. Um, you know, Nashville has really accelerated its growth because of COVID. You've got a lot of these, I guess, mostly coastal residents. So, you know, the Chicagoans, the Michigan, Michiganites, 
New Yorkers, uh, you know, Californians, they're all moving to Nashville uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, and they come in here and they look at, you know, $512 a square foot and they don't blink twice because in their market, it's so much more expensive. Uh, and they, you know, feel like they're getting a deal here, which has contributed to a lot of local Nashville investors and developers really missing out on a pretty fair portion uh, of the appreciation in this market. And so, you know, we, we're, we're having to start looking at it like, uh, like out-of-staters. You know, we're, we're not in Nashville pricing anymore. We are one of the top three markets in the country, according to the Urban Land Institute, when they released their 2021 emerging trends in commercial real estate. So Nashville's really getting up there. And as we teased a little bit in the introduction, Fifth and Broad has finally announced a major milestone. They, they let this out last Wednesday uh, that they are, they've basically finished their primary construction um, and they will be opening here soon. So April 2017 is when they broke ground. It's hard to believe that that was really almost four years ago. Uh, if you're not familiar with Fifth and Broad, um, you're probably obviously not in Nashville because it's the biggest thing that's been going on here for a while. It is a massive development downtown on Broadway, 5th and Broadway. I mean, prime location as far as, uh, you know, tourism traffic goes because you're right across the street from the, the Predators Stadium uh, and adjacent to all the honky-tonks and bars in Nashville. It's this massive mixed-use campus. They've got office. They've got retail. They've got restaurant. And they are actually opening up for retail and dining on March 4th, so only a few days from now. Uh, if you haven't looked into that project, I highly recommend it. It's beautiful. They redeveloped the old convention center downtown when uh, uh, the you know the city obviously essentially abandoned, I guess, after we developed the new Music City Convention Center. So a lot of good news coming out there for Nashville. You know, it's uh, it's interesting again to see a 37% year-over-year decrease in commercial sales, yet we're still delivering some of our biggest projects. We're still achieving some incredible prices per square foot on uh on residential as well as commercial really so uh that'll be that'll be fun to see now on to market watch what market are we going to be talking about this week well it's not really a surprise that raleigh durham is going to be on the market watch this week they have overtaken austin as the hottest real estate area according to this article by researchtriangle.org you know Raleigh-Durham has got so much going for it. It's, it's in a phenomenal state. It's a better tax environment than what some of these other growing cities are in. And it's got all of the benefits of being, uh, you know, on, you know, near Appalachia, right? They've got the coast not too far away. The mountains aren't too far away. You've got this pretty amazing lifestyle, um, you know, tons of jobs, and it's very educated. You've got a number of colleges and universities there. Um, you know, of course, Nashville uh, is number three, Austin's number two, but it's pretty remarkable to see a small, you know, I guess relatively small city now, a uh, city like Raleigh-Durham overtake Austin. I mean, Austin has, uh, Austin's been at the top of the list for years. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just an attractive market. I mean, you've got lower housing and business costs, which of course is going to be attractive to, I don't know, everybody. Uh, you know, when you've got a good lifestyle and everything is less expensive, I mean, why wouldn't you consider moving there? Um, 
there's a, a massive amount of of construction going on out there as well. They've they've definitely been rivaling Nashville over the last few years in terms of crane count. They have a number of resilient industries too, which is very important when you're looking at these markets. Again, that's why Nashville has fared so well through the pandemic, but also fared incredibly well through 2008, you know, compared to other markets. We have healthcare, we've got education, we've got tech, we've got business. We've, you know, it's, it's the same thing that's going on here at, at Raleigh. Um, healthcare, government and technology, that makes up the, a 40.9% uh, of its workforce, which, I mean, you think about how secure those jobs are. If you're ever worried about your tenants paying rent or, uh, you know, whether you're multifamily or business, I mean, that's, those are pretty good, pretty good numbers to have. They've also got a lot of tech companies. Um, they've got a good tech labor pool, which has been fun to watch. You know, the East Coast is really giving the West Coast a run for its money when it comes to tech. You know, a lot of millennials want to live in these cooler Southeast cities, uh, which, again, that's pretty interesting to bring up. I mean, I guess technically Austin is, is South, but Nashville, Raleigh-Durham, Southeast, um, you know, the Southeast is starting to take over the, the whole country. So anyway, uh, you know, we, we look at the um, 2021 report for from ULI. You see here top five, Raleigh, Durham, Austin, Nashville, Dallas, Fort Worth, Charlotte. I mean, Raleigh's coming in and, and topping some pretty impressive markets. They are what uh, ULI calls an 18-hour city. So you can see the other 18-hour cities are Austin, Charlotte, Denver, Nashville, San Diego, Seattle. Uh, an 18-hour city is basically, it's not a sleepy city anymore, but it's not quite a 24-hour city like New York. So they are growing rapidly. They've got a lot of very attractive features to them that, you know, great culture, great work environment, and, uh, you know, a burgeoning business and tech hub. Uh, but it's not quite a 24-hour city, which makes them very attractive, and they're more affordable uh, than those 24-hour cities. So that's it for Market Watch. Keep an eye on Raleigh Durham. Big fan of what's going on in that market. It's uh, it, it's you know everybody talks about Nashville and Austin being sister cities. People don't really talk about Raleigh and Nashville and Austin being sister cities, but they really are. I mean, they've all got very similar qualities uh, and and just as big of a draw um, as the other ones. Now moving on to office, so. This is an article from DigiDay, the future of business, or sorry, the future of office. Businesses mole blending residential units with office real estate. So I thought that th this one was pretty interesting because the pandemic has really changed the way that we look at single asset investments, right? I mean, if you owned just office in your portfolio, Chances are pretty good that after the pandemic, you're considering diversifying that portfolio somehow, whether that's buying multifamily, buying industrial, or renovating some of your office buildings and adding multifamily. So that's what this article talks about. Um, you know, this is, uh, it says a study said that um, by a real estate firm, Clever, found that 20% of workers in the U.S. feel safe working in an office. Uh, be interesting to see when they actually did that. I would imagine if they did that in, you know, March or April of last year, it'd be very different than the sentiment today. 
and also who they were uh, who they were surveying. If you're surveying, you know, Floridians, uh, I think that they're going to have a very different uh, feel than uh, San Franciscans. But so, you know, these companies are starting to turn in. Let's let's see. Here's a quote. If I'm a company and I'm going to build a 400,000 square foot office space with the typical office configuration. Now I'm realizing that if I build 200 to 300,000 square feet of apartments to go with that, those units become more work from home offices of sorts. So essentially, you're, it's the traditional mixed use play. You're letting the uses play off of each other. The, the multifamily is going to attract the office user. The office user is going to attract the multifamily user. There's no reason in a post-COVID 2021 plus world for any property, well, for most properties, to be single asset. I think, you know, there's no, there's nothing bad really that could come out of having an apartment mixed with office, um, or having apartments mixed with retail, or office mixed with retail, or even you know retail on the ground floor with hotel and then office. You know, you're you're really hedging your bet in one building, so that if anything ever happens and you know offices get shut down again or hotels get shut down again, you still have another use or two or even maybe three in that same building that will continue paying rent, that will continue thriving, that will help hedge your bet uh, in case anything like this ever happens again. Now, of course, look, COVID is super rare. I mean, it's, you know, the last time we had a pandemic like this was 100 years ago. So do we think that this will happen in our lifetimes again? Hopefully not. The chances are good that it doesn't. But if you're an investor, it doesn't hurt to go ahead and hedge that bet. Uh, and, you know, investors like that. Um, your LP will like that. Your lenders will like that. So, I mean, why not? We're actually doing that on a project in Chattanooga. So uh, I just bought uh, a, a nine-story tower down there with a little three-story annex next door. And it was originally constructed as a hotel back in 1915. And the county actually bought it in the late 80s, renovated the whole building, and they occupied it as office space until, I guess, last year. So the whole building is, is built out for office. Well, you know, Chattanooga has a great office environment. There's a lot of tech. You know, we talked about that last week. Every, every reason that I love Chattanooga, there's so many. But, you know, they've got a, a massive amount of millennials, a very startup-friendly environment, and a lot of tech companies that are moving there. And so, of course, offices doing the right offices are doing well. Uh, your more old school offices are struggling. They're vacant. So we wanted to do th basically exactly what this article said. We're converting half of the building into micro apartment units. So, you know, 300, 400 square foot studio style apartments. Well, you know, we've got uh, in all of our data, it's just showing, you know, the people that are going to be renting the multifamily they're not guaranteed to be working in the office space downstairs, but chances are pretty damn good that they are going to be. And they just find that more attractive. We'll have a, a cafe on the ground floor with a speakeasy in the basement, and the amenities will be shared between the office and the multifamily users. So that actually ends up working out very well for both parties too, because think about it. The multifamily users will be likely utilizing those amenities in the after hours right? So you're, you're having the same amenities for, let's say for 12 stories, we'll add the, t all, you know, the nine plus three for 12 stories, 
but the multifamily is only occupying six. So they're getting basically twice the amount of amenities for themselves during the time that they would be using them. Same for the office space. They will have access to all those amenities during the day, which means they're basically getting twice the amount of amenities for their typical, you know, kind of office space. Um, so, that, you know, that's just, that's very attractive. And for us as investors, I mean, the lender actually told us, like, can you get more multifamily in here? Uh, we were originally considering two or three fours. They said, can you get even more? We'll give you even better terms on the deal. And we said, yeah, twist my arm. We'll absolutely figure out how we can uh, figure out how to, how to put more multifamily in this deal. So um, we're, we're really excited about that. And, and it gives us the opportunity again, you know, multifamily is going to go through a much faster lease up than the commercial will. So we'll have that revenue coming in sooner. Uh, and then, you know, the commercial will obviously be more longer, long term. So there's, there's a, any number of reasons as to why you should do that. And honestly, there aren't very many downsides unless you're looking at economies of scale. Uh, but even then, I, I, I just don't think that it's worth it. CBRE backs industrious in $200 million flex office deal. So this is from Commercial Property Executive. This is pretty interesting because last week we talked about how Notel basically went bankrupt. They were worth, worth over a billion dollars. And they traded for, I don't know, what was it, like 10 or $16 million? I mean, it was almost nothing. So... You know, we talked a little bit about how a flex office could be in trouble. And look at this. Another article comes out this week about how basically saying exactly what I was saying. Not that they were listening to me by any means. But, you know, CBRE has invested a significant amount of money into this space. And CBRE is the largest commercial real estate brokerage in the world. They've got some of the best data possible out there. So if CBRE is making a move, you know that it is a very educated and very well thought out move. So basically what they're doing is they're, they are making a play on the ownership model. So it's a co-investment or management agreement model with the ownership of the buildings. I mean, like I was saying last week, it, it, this, this lease arbitrage, just it's so tough to, to make sense of. And you're going out and you're leasing space, and then you've got to go out and sublease that space. Now, there are some industries, some models, where that has proven to work. Salons, for example. Salon, almost every salon you'll ever come across is done this way. They go out, one person leases the entire space, and then they sublease to each individual, uh, you know, I guess renter uh, for the salon. So, stylist, whatever you want to call them. And it works, right? Like salons do very well. But, you know, as we've seen time and time again with WeWork struggling, with Notel going bankrupt, almost bankrupt, I guess they probably didn't file bankruptcy. But, um, you know, it it's tough to see how the lease arbitrage works. Now, what they're doing is they are coming in and working with the ownership of the property to basically manage the entire property uh, instead of just doing their own space. So they're not just, I mean, yes, they're going to continue their model of subleasing out these little spaces. Uh, but, you know, they're going, to, uh, they're going to expand and reduce their risk by actually becoming more of a traditional, I guess, traditional property management company uh, in that sense, which I think is a great move for them. It makes all the sense in the world. Um, 
for them to hedge, you know, again, a lot of what you'll see us talking about, I guess, for a while is going to be is going to be how all of these groups are hedging their bet um, and, you know, lowering their potential risk for the future. Let's move on into retail. So Simon Property Group malls see valuations slashed up to 88 percent. Let that sink in. Could you imagine getting your property valued at $100 million? And then only a few years later, the bank comes back and says this is worth $12 million. That's a pretty, I mean, for me to say that that's a pretty significant drop is such an understatement uh, that it, I'm not even going to say it. So there are a number of reasons. There's one up in uh, Crystal Mall in Waterford, Connecticut, recorded the most dramatic fall from $153 million in 2012 to $18.7 million in February this month, uh, an 88% drop. Sears left that location in 2018. Macy's is dying. So, I mean, it's not really surprising. Two of their biggest anchors dead. Uh, and... You know, the way that malls work, you basically, you give, you almost give away the big spaces, the anchor spaces to attract all of the smaller tenants so that they pay the higher rents and you make money, right? You, you let the anchors basically be the draw for the smaller guys. The only problem with that is that if the anchors go away, why the hell are the small guys going to stay? They're not driving traffic anymore. They can't justify the crazy high rents. You know, this is an example of exactly what we were just talking about in the last article where a you have a single-use asset. So it's all retail. It's all shopping, you know, and that's, that's one of the reasons that these malls just aren't doing well. Uh, there was a mall down in Bellevue that actually got renovated in the last few years. It was one of the bigger projects that's happened in Nashville as well. And uh, they came in and raised the, the old shopping mall and threw up a mixed-use project. You know, you add in some multifamily, you add in some office space, and it, it, then it can support this retail again because retail and shopping is just shifting. I mean, it is. You know, we're, we're seeing the Amazon effect. You're not going to have the exact same type of retail, or you, or you cannot – sustain the same size of retail as we did 20 years ago it just it's just not going to work like that anymore i mean i you know, i'm looking at a package right here on my desk that i just ordered from amazon that's probably something that 10 15 years ago we would have gone down to the store and bought so we just don't need as much retail anymore and and you know with sears and macy's leaving it's going to force all the small guys to leave so keep an eye out for mall redevelopments i think that there are any number of really great uses that can actually go in there. Honestly, if you if you tore down one part of a shopping mall and added on a, an apartment tower and added on a condo tower and an office tower, but you kept the original shopping mall, I mean, there's no reason for that to not thrive again because now you've got so many bodies on site that would shop there, that would eat there uh, and be patrons and just you know kind of help create the electricity that commercial real estate developments need to succeed then, you know, they'll, they'll do just fine. They'll do just fine. Okay, moving on to a, an article from CNBC. As store owners sign more short-term leases, landlords are taking a risky bet on the future of retail. 
So this one comes as no surprise. I mean, retailers, with all the uncertainty that's going on, they're looking to sign shorter-term leases, especially considering the pandemic. And when I, when I say uncertainty, I mean everything that was going on before the pandemic. I mean, retail was already on shaky legs. Uh, now we had the pandemic come through. So, uh, you know, they're starting to move towards these one- to three-year leases instead of these five, seven, ten-plus-year leases because we just don't know where the world is going to be in the next 10 years. And so why would you commit to signing a 10-year lease if you're you know, one of these clothing retailers, right? Because theoretically, everything that you sell could be sold online. Now, we can argue the I want to touch it, feel it uh, side of buying all day, and I think that's totally true. And, and for some things, I'm right there with you. But, I mean, if, if you know your size – why would you need to go to a store? Uh, it's just, you know, and deal with the parking. I mean, going Christmas shopping at the Green Hills Mall or Cool Springs Galleria is one of the worst things that you will ever do. Um, I do not enjoy it. It's, 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 you know, it's pretty miserable, to be honest with you. Um, so as retailers' leases come up for a renewal, they are increasingly shrinking the duration. Um you know, this is actually a good thing for landlords, though, if, if we're thinking about it, right? So landlords can actually start to raise rents faster than they could if they were signing long-term leases. Now, that being said, they're not going to have the same um, assurance that they would on a longer-term lease. And I'm sure lenders are not going to look at that as favorably. But, you know, multifamily's got away, gotten away with short-term leases, you know, 6- to 12-month leases for, you know, any number of years. Um, so why, why couldn't, uh, why couldn't commercial real estate do the same? We also teased this one in the, at the beginning of the show as well. Previously left for dead rural retail is showing its resilience. I thought that this was pretty fascinating because you would think that, you know, that suburban or rural, re not suburban, I guess, really just rural. So country, you know, out in the country retail, uh, would be really struggling. Um, but I guess because of the supply chains and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, rural communities, brick and mortar retail is actually thriving, which, which makes sense. If, you, if you've been watching Dollar General for the last 10 years, they've been focusing almost exclusively on adding rural retail just about everywhere. Because I think that what they have realized is that the convenience of ordering you know, goods online hasn't quite hit that part of the country yet. You know, it's super, it's so easy for, you know, Nashville, you can get same day delivery, right? Because we've got a, an Amazon warehouse right down the street. But, you know, if you look at, live out in uh, Bucksnort, Tennessee, you're not as close to that. Maybe you don't even get two day delivery, right? Maybe it's going to take three, four, five days for you to get your packages shipped. So in the meantime, why wouldn't you just stop by the Dollar General on the way home and pick it up if it's going to take that much time? Um, I mean, it, it, makes, it makes a lot of sense to me. You know, basically, so Andy and I were actually having a conversation before we went live talking about how it's, it's basically going to take a fleet of drones that, that deliver these goods and packages to these rural areas to really give rural retail a run for its money. 
Now, one thing, of course, that you would want to focus on if you're interested in investing in rural retail, don't go get a strip center with a dry cleaner and a nail salon, right? Like that's that's about as risky as you can get. Focus on the everyday goods and services, uh, which really should be a, a, you know, the cornerstone of investing in retail in 2020 plus anyway. So think of the, the family dollars, right? The, the Kroger's the, or Piggly Wiggly's, whatever kind of, you know, grocery stores, the, the Dollar Generals. Those are offering some incredible conveniences to the nearby residences. And, you know, they've, they've proven to be fairly resilient uh, to, to change. Let's move on to industrial. Industrial has been pretty interesting. Like we said, figured considering how much industrial has just absolutely taken off over the last 10 years, that we would talk about the top 10 markets for industrial transactions in 2020. Which markets do you think sold or traded the most industrial assets? Um, I'm actually surprised by a couple of these. So number one, of course, is Los Angeles, which isn't too big of a surprise. You know, Los Angeles uh, has a, a massive industrial market because it's serving almost all of the West Coast, uh, followed by Chicago and Phoenix. The ones that surprised me a little bit, though, are Atlanta and Denver. Uh, well, and I would throw Dallas-Fort Worth on there, coming in at 8, 9, and 10, respectively. Um, you know, these cities aren't located on – they're not coastal, right? So you wouldn't expect there to just be this massive shipping and industrial hub already. But it's proving that distribution and logistics hubs are becoming more and more important in these thriving, growing cities. So I would, I would expect that to continue to rise. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Atlanta, Denver, and Dallas, Fort Worth started creeping further up this list uh, in terms of, of the top 10, uh, you know, metros for industrial transactions. Um, I mean, let's talk about that for a second. Let's let's talk about Atlanta. Atlanta closed nearly four, $1.4 billion in industrial deals in 2020, um, which was only a 5.9% increase over 2019. That's actually it's not a lot compared to some of these other markets. Let's see. Price per square foot jumped nearly one quarter uh, to $78 a foot. That's actually that's really good. Um Class B investments interest topped $760 million. So the the most traded, uh, people aren't as interested in the Class C. I mean, obviously, uh, there's probably interest there. You're just not going to get the high dollar volume. Uh, class A, you know, you're looking at sub 4% cap rate sometimes. So, you know, that's going to be more institutional. Uh, and there probably aren't as many of those types of assets built. So Class B, you know, the buildings built within the last 10 years trading, that makes a lot of sense. Let's look at Denver. At the end of 2020, the Metro's 8.3 million square feet under construction accounted for nearly 7% of total stock. Think about that. They currently have 7% of their total industrial stock under construction. I mean, they are building like crazy out in Denver. And again, makes sense. You think, what's, what's between you know Denver and the West Coast? I mean, Denver's probably going to be servicing quite a bit of everything around there. Um, and then same for, you know, Denver basically over to the Mississippi River. 
Um, let's see, they did $1.2 billion in sales, marking a nearly 40% increase compared to the previous year. That's significant. So that puts the 6% for Atlanta really in perspective. Denver increased 40% year over year in industrial sales. Wouldn't you like to be an industrial real estate broker in Denver right now? That's, that's pretty impressive. Um, okay, let's dive into Dallas-Fort Worth. Big fan of Texas. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit about you know the, the trouble that they could be headed for um, in, the, in the wild card today. But let's see. Vacancy in the metro was 4.3% in December. That is incredibly low. Uh, rent stood at $4.49 a foot. There's a 4.3% increase year over year. They sold $1.1 billion in industrial deals, um, which was a close split between Class A and Class B assets. Let's see. Yeah, that's pretty much all they say uh, about Dallas-Fort Worth. I mean, look, it's it's not a huge surprise. You've got this, this major metro in the south uh, in a state that has no state income tax. If you're an investor and you're looking at where you should be placing your capital – you're going to go to a state that has no state income tax, and you're going to go to a uh, to industrial because industrial is just performing so well, so well. All right, moving on. Net lease market beats expectations. A late year rally drove one of the strongest quarters on record, according to new research from Stan Johnson Co. This is according to the Commercial Property Executive. Significant pent-up demand from investors in the fourth quarter of 2020 helped the overall single-tenant net lease sales volume surpass $60 billion, with more than $20.5 billion in activity coming in the last three months of the year. So the interesting thing about, I guess, there's a, there's a perfect storm going on for single-tenant net lease deals in the industrial environment, industrial world right now. You've got industrial performing as incredibly well as it is i mean it doesn't matter if we're in an up or a down economy and industrial seems to hold pretty strong you've also got the uncertainty that comes from that has come from this pandemic right so a lot of investors uh, or investment groups REITs, hedge funds that have never really had a significant position in commercial real estate are starting to take commercial real estate very seriously, which means they are investing in probably the easiest step for an investment group to make into commercial real estate, single tenant net lease deals. So, it, you know, it's it's not a surprise at all. And of course, with, with a third of that coming in the last quarter, it, it's, it's basically akin to what we saw, in, you know, earlier in the year when I said, look, we lost three months Nashville had a 37% decrease, but we actually ended up having our like best year ever by, it was over 30, 40%. It's because at the end of the year, everybody wanted to buy everything. You know, you just had so much pent up demand from investors that had decided, you know what, COVID's not having as big of an impact as we thought it was going to have. We still need to get out there and buy as much as we can. We don't see these values going down. Let's get out and buy. And, you know, clearly they did. Private investors were the largest group at 38%, followed by institutional investors that drove 28% of the overall fourth quarter sales. That's pretty wild. All right. Let's get into 
multifamily. So this article from BizNow, institutional investors pouring equity with urgency into mid-market multifamily. Again, not a surprise, right? I mean, you look at these coastal cities and, uh, you know, these, these traditional major urban hubs, and you've got a lot of residents leaving. I mean, how many residents left New York City during the pandemic because they got tired of being cooped up in their house or their apartment, realized there was no end in sight anytime soon? So many. And the quality of life, it finally reached a breaking point. It's why am I going to pay all these taxes in New York City when I can go to an Austin, Texas or a Nashville, Tennessee and pay no state income tax, have a much higher quality of life? I've got just as good a job opportunities in these cities as I do in, in a New York City, Chicago, or L.A. Uh, and that's, you know, investors are falling, right? So um, let's, let's dive a little further into this. Renters did flee top Class A multifamily products in many of the nation's downtown urban cores, especially top coastal markets such as New York City and San Francisco. That, again, it, it, that only reinforces that, you know, being in these downtown urban environments, I think uh, most people, if they're given the chance, are going to look elsewhere. Uh, and it makes sense, too, it, just as far as pricing. You know, we're talking about rents. There's been some massive downward pressure on rents, which, of course, you got to lower your prices to keep people. It's become so expensive in those states. Everybody starts researching, you know, how, <laughs> the cost of living. And these, you know, Midwest and southeastern cities compared to what they're doing now, and they could actually work remotely or, you know, again, they have the same job opportunity in these new cities. Why, why wouldn't they just leave and go to another one? So pricing is getting disrupted in the urban core. We don't see that slowing down anytime soon uh, as investors continue to move to these mid-market multifamily assets. This one from Multifamily Bez, Multifamily Housing Construction Starts Kickoff 2021 down 7% in January, according to latest Dodge data report. Uh, that's pretty interesting, but again, not, not, really, not really surprising, right? Construction costs have gotten so unbelievably high in the last 10 years that it's very difficult to make a project make sense. I actually kind of hope that this goes on for a little bit and construction slows down so that prices and labor, uh, both, both you know, material and labor costs will go down. Um, it, it just, it doesn't make any sense. Some of these quotes that we've gotten on our, our developments and, you know, we had, uh, I had one of my, one of my tenants uh, is doing a, a build out on, on his house and he went and bought lumber um, I guess it was sometime last week and went back, got the exact same set of lumber. Cause I guess he's doing, you know, the same, I guess he must've bought like two walls and then he's buying the other two walls. I don't know why he do it separately, but it cost him 20% more the second time he went to buy it because lumber prices had already gone up. And that's the same across the board for even con contractors doing these big projects. We were having this conversation yesterday about how, you know, it doesn't matter if a contractor gives you a price right now unless they're giving you a GMP, a guaranteed maximum price, because by the time you break ground and, you know, six months later or four months later, they get to framing, it, the price is going to be totally different. I mean, you can't even predict it because it's going up so fast. So 
hopefully this slowdown in construction starts will actually help pricing come down out of the stratosphere um, and back to where it's realistic. Because at the end of the day, construction costs determine the the rents, right? I mean, if 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 it's going to cost X to build a building, I've got to rent it to a tenant for Y to make a return. So if X goes down, then Y goes down. Um, so lower construction costs will only help. Uh, you know, again, free market. If construction, if my construction costs are lower, which means I can provide a an equivalent property as the one next door, but at a lower price, all of their tenants are going to come lease my space. So that's that's what we want to happen, right? All right. Now for this week's wild card, what could be such bad news for Texas? Well, if you've been watching the news or you live in Texas, you saw what was going on the past couple weeks. They had a massive ice storm, one of the worst they've ever seen, and that could really impact their future and their growth. From BizNow, the bill will come due. Can Texas support its massive growth? So when this winter storm happened, it showed the major weakness that Texas has when it comes to its its you know statewide infrastructure. Um, you know they tried to blame it on wind turbines getting frozen. I don't know if that's true or not, but at, at the end of the day, Texas had uh, really I guess they've got their own power grid. They've got their own electric grid. Separate from the United States government, I guess they thought it would give them some security if they ever seceded from the nation, and uh, that was clearly a mistake. Uh, they didn't even have the U.S. government's uh, electric grid as a backup, so of course, <coughs> so of course they are they have these rolling blackouts. Several people actually, you know, people end up dying because it was so cold and all the power was getting cut off, and. You know, there, there were reports that it would cost $900 to charge a Tesla. And people were getting $10,000 electric bills, which is just insane. Absolutely insane. I mean, you know, if you're just trying to heat your house to stay alive and then they send you a $10,000 electric bill, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know how I would handle that. But the problem that that poses for Texas, if I'm an investor – and I am looking at states that have no state income tax, right? Let's just say that's my number one criteria. And I'm trying to make sure that I have the lowest risk possible going into any of these investments. I'm going to be taking Texas's power grid as a major, major red flag and a risk on that investment now. You know, over the last decade, Texas has grown 17%. Think about that, seven, almost 20% in one decade. That's 4.2 million people have moved to Texas. So imagine the additional strain on that power grid, and it's not going to slow down anytime soon. I, you know, I love Texas. I, I think that it's an incredible place to invest. It's clearly performing incredibly well. As you've seen, everything that we've been talking about, Love Austin, love Dallas-Fort Worth, but you've got to take that into account. And I think that this will actually be a good thing for commercial real estate overall. Everybody's seeing that because the, the, the rumble that's been going on in our circles is more of a, okay, well, how do we prevent that from ever happening to us? 
So groups are actually starting to look at geothermal more seriously. They're starting to look at solar power and wind power on their buildings more seriously. How can we become more self-sustaining? How can we recapture our own rainwater so that we can reutilize that and leave not only less of a carbon footprint, it's great to do that, but it's kind of a survival tactic. I mean, you know, Austin's, uh, so Bruce Peterson, my, my partner um, down in Austin, they had, I think it was like 20 or 50 units where the pipes froze. Um, one, I mean, the water pressure, I was going towards the water pressure dropped, um, but they had a bunch of pipes freeze and they had all sorts of issues. And they, they were literally t- uh, shoveling snow into a bathtub so they had enough water to just clean things and flush toilets because there was almost no water pressure anymore. So you just think of little things like that and what that could provide, the, the kind of security that could provide to a tenant. If you say, look, if anything ever happens, you know, we've got these backup systems in place to make sure that you're going to be just fine. I think that that's going to be very critical over the, few, over the next few years. So, yeah, we could see, yeah, state's population, 29.3 million. More than 200 companies relocated their corporate headquarters to Texas. So, you know, like I said, it's not going to be slowing down anytime soon. They've got to get their infrastructural issues figured out. So that is it for this week's episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. If you have any comments, questions, be uh, feel free to leave them in the comments below. Uh, don't forget to join us Mondays at 5.30 p.m. CST, Central Standard, uh, to join live and ask your questions and have a conversation. I want this to be an open discussion on the world of commercial real estate and news that are going on. Uh, appreciate you guys, and we will see you next time.